Welcome to Here With Me, Maggie John, a podcast about life stories and lessons learned that asks the question, what got you to the place you find yourself in at this point in your life? Today's episode is a little different than our previous episodes. Today, we're delving into African-American literature. While I love to sit and listen to people's life stories here on this podcast, today we're talking to the author of a new book that caught my attention as soon as I saw it. It's called Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just. Claude Acho is the author of this brand new book. He's also a pastor and a writer who lives in the Virginia area. And in the midst of the global racial awakening that was happening just a few years ago, he decided to delve into some of the most classic books written by black authors like James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, Toni Morrison's Beloved, Richard Wright's Native Son, and so many more through a spiritual lens. And what he found was inspiring and challenging. And even if you've never read one of these iconic works of literature, I think you'll find this conversation rich with layers of discovery and meaning. And hopefully you will run to your nearest uh, bookstore or go online and you'll pick up some of these iconic works. And Roxanne Francis is back for Black Girl Chat. And today we're talking about identity. The first time we realized we were black or someone treated us differently because of our skin color. And there is so much more to that conversation. As you know, here on Black Girl Chat, it gets pretty deep. Let's get started with today's episode. All right, I am joined by Claude Acho. Claude, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, thank you for having me. I always love to start our podcast with asking the question, describe where you are at this moment. Uh, What brings you here at this moment, be it mentally, spiritually, physically, how would you describe the place in which you're in right now? Hmm, what a question. I would say what brings me to this moment is um, just conversation. I've just kind of finished up, you know, writing, writing a particular book project and now it's, it's been with me and now I've I've been able to release it to others. And now I'm getting all of these great opportunities to sort of speak with people about how they're responding to this work. So uh, I guess the sense of kind of openness and conversation, it feels like um, a lot of the conversations I'm in right now are kind of collaborative people responding to things that, I, that I've written in this book, which is a response to many other books that people have written. So I feel like I'm in this big mm-hmm. conversation uh, with others and it's been, it's been quite a lot of fun. It's interesting. Yeah. Conversation, right? I feel like, especially around topics uh, centering around Black people, we've been in this constant conversation, I think in the past two years, like an ongoing conversation, it feels like. And does it get tiring? Does it get weary? Um. No, it hasn't mm. because I think of late from um from my book the way that I'm trying to have some of these conversations are rooted in the works of of literature and so it's it's it, which is a kind of an endless well of mm. um inspiration, critique, um constructive hope and help. So it's been uh pretty refreshing. So so yeah. it's been actually conversations that are less just hey, here's this issue that's important. It's been more here's this art 
that mm. opens us up to think about these issues also opens us up to think about the Christian faith in um, in good and deep ways. And so, so it's actually been um, more restorative to engage through the art rather than kind of a bombardment of the same conversation about just the issue. It's put more, it feels like to me, more kind of substance and care around important topics. And, and the book we're talking about is Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and just why write this book, Claude? I, I wrote this book um, because it's a book that I, I really wanted to read uh, at yeah. earlier points in my life and wanted to read at some point. And I thought, you know, let me let me take my shot at this. Um, I have a background. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, uh, but I also have a background as a um, an English uh, an English student, uh, an undergrad and in graduate uh, studies, and for a real short period of time, uh, teaching English at a community college level. So uh, I've always loved books, always loved stories um, of all genres, and then uh, certainly African-American literature as well. So I remember coming across some of the great works of um, African-American literature in particular, and sort of reading um, particular novels and being very moved by them, challenged by them, and uh, receiving really great instruction and conversation around these books in my English classes. Mm -hmm but never knowing how to process uh, the books in terms of my faith, never knowing how to make the connection from that literary discussion to uh, Christian reflection, to lived application uh, as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus. And so that side of the equation was sort of missing. And so I wanted to, to fill in that gap um, and wanted to, um, to help contribute in that way. Uh, and at the same time, um, you know, I started really working on this book in uh, March 2020, uh, really at the onset of the, the pandemic um, and a lot of uh, racial unrest um, through the summer of 2020, uh, uh, stateside in particular. And so I, I saw this sort of upswell of people wanting to listen to Black voices and, and sort of uh, read and understand and grow uh, a lot of a lot of desire there happening kind of in in from, from my observation. And I, I remember thinking, oh, well, one really important way, one kind of enduring way to sort of listen to broader perspectives is, is through literature. And so mm -hmm. that sort of uh, confirmed and catalyzed this project that there's a way, I think, to listen to um, Black literature that read in a literary lens and a, and a theological lens can contribute, um, I think, great uh, healing um, and depth to uh to understanding a lot of issues and to really seeing the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus in particular areas. Mm. You also had shared about your journey while, while writing the book, you tweeted that your mom had had a stroke and your two-year-old daughter had gone through major surgery while writing the book. That's a, a lot to go through while you're writing this really deep book. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, we had, you know, and I don't know, everyone has these stories probably over the last two years of, um, of just challenge. I've just I've continued to be floored by how much people have endured and, um, and how they've been able to carry through, uh, through family support, friends, and I mean, mm. ultimately it's God sustaining help. Um, but yeah, you know, we felt that for our family as well. We had just a string of like, you know, seven or eight different things that were just kind of like, man, this is, this is a lot. And so, yeah. um, so, you know, I'm grateful for, uh, church friends and, and people praying for us and helping us get through and, you know, uh, obviously really thankful to say everybody's healthy and, and doing well, but yeah, it was at the time, especially it was just kind of wave after wave and, uh, it was a lot, but I'm, I'm grateful to, uh, you know, have the support of, um, friends and family to be able to just finish the book and, yeah. and get it out and, and, and be intact, um, and hit the finish line. 
Before we delve into the book, what was it like selling this book to your publisher saying, hey, I want to look at these, you know, iconic uh, pieces of literature through a, a scriptural, spiritual lens? What was that conversation like? There was, you know, there was a lot of openness to to the book, and I think what I realized being a new writer and not being a, um, you know, uh, kind of a recognizable, you know, figure or anything like that, uh, I realized how important um, how important it is for publishers to to work with people that um, are visible, so that whatever they're going to do could hopefully turn a profit. So, I my in my situation, the publisher really liked um, really liked the topic really liked the sample that I set in. And the question was really, um, you know, would, would I be a, a kind of a viable person to sort of push it out so that mm. it could get the reading that it would deserve? Mm. So, um, so I think I, I, I benefited from, as I mentioned, the sort of interest and upswell uh, mm-hmm. of sort of, hey, we need to diversify what we're reading and thinking about. And there's much to be gained there. So I benefited from that and people were interested. It was really the question of like, oh, well, are you really the one to, are you the one to do this? Right. <laughs> and I want to say, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think I have something to offer. Yeah. I want to start off on page uh, 12 and you, you start off the book with uh, Ralph Ellison's um, book, Invisible Man, and want to read uh, a little bit here. It says, um, I'll read from the top of page 12. The novel opens with the protagonist mulling over his life's journey. The events readers will soon experience with an arresting metaphorical I am declaration. I am an invisible man. Invisibility in Invisible Man conveys restricted freedom and selective visibility. Readers quickly find that Invisible, the nameless protagonist, is not seen as a full human complete with autonomy and dignity. He is viewed only as a living pawn to be acted upon or moved in service to any agenda but his own. In a cruel irony, I'm going to skip down, that runs against the grain of creation, image bearers strip fellow image bearers of the freedom to image by applying their God-given capacities to restrict the image-bearing capacities of others. To experience such is to be seen not as an image bearer, but as a commodity, selectively worthy of humane treatment, one who is in the end expendable and therefore invisible. I love that. First of all, maybe set the stage for us, for those readers or listeners who haven't heard or read uh, Invisible Man, kind of set the stage of what's happening in this book. Yeah, gladly. So uh, Invisible Man is a novel by Ralph Ellison, uh, came out in uh, 1952 uh, and won the National uh, Book Award. Um, and it's one of the one of the best novels of the 20th century. Um, so it's a, it's a great piece of literature. And it, it tells the story of uh, a nameless protagonist um, that I, many just call Invisible. Uh, and he is really dealing with this question of what will it take for society to see me? And the book takes place uh, sort of in the, the kind of 40s, you know, so so pre uh, kind of civil rights era. And uh, the book is his recollection of his journey to find out the answer. What will it take for people to see me as a, as a human being, as somebody worthy of, of dignity? And he retells his life story uh, from kind of like the underground, from outside of society, and he and he looks back and and and, and tells us his journey. He starts in the south, moves to the north, and kind of at each and every turn, he 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 clings to different sort of hopes 
to gain visibility and dignity and recognition. So first it's kind of like education, uh, then it's the workforce, then it's moving north, right? Maybe the north will be more enlightened than the south. Then it's sort of like political activism, all these different sort of things. And in each one, he sees it as a dead end where he's he ends up being kind of commodified and, and therefore invisible. Um, and the novel is quite powerful um, and also, um, you know, in some places really humorous, but uh it, it raises this question of um, how do people uh, how do people see him? And he mm-hmm. stands in for sort of the everyday um, uh, black person. Uh, how are they seen? But then the novel ends with this question of kind of um, well, okay, well, how do how do how do you see others? But how do others see you? And so Ellison, I think, is really interested in in um, the particular uh, black experience, but then also uh, plants these seeds and raises the question that I think cuts across just sort of the black and white divide into sort of a human relation uh, of sight and beholding one another in ways that are that are good and right. So it's a very powerful book in that regard. And I think it's really wise that it that it speaks to a particular experience, but then it also manages to um, connect, I think, in a universal way. Yeah. And you, again, I, I read Invisible Man, never got that deep. So thank you, Claude, for... <laughs> For peeling back the layers for for us throughout this. But you talk about the symbolism of the invisibility and the juxtaposition of being an image bearer of God and being seen from God's perspective. The fact that we as Black people are seen um, and, and yet in society um, are can be invisible in many ways. Describe to me how you see that still happening in 2022. In you know, I mean, again, Ralph Ellison's book is quite old, but this is still a reality for us. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, I think you see it. You know, there there's a point in the novel um, where you know, as Invisible kind of comes to his epiphany moment of mm-hmm. how people how he's really seen by others. Um, you know, it, that epiphany moment is really catalyzed by uh, by the death of of a black person, and that becomes this. Uh, a moment of awakening for him as he in response to that death actually tries to sort to to dignify this person that had been killed and to to honor their life uh and as he tries to do that the way that the sort of powers that be respond to him helps him realize oh this is what you think of me mm. really and uh, I think, you know, I don't have to explain too many connections there uh, for, mm-hmm. for over the last several years. Um, and uh, so, so I think it connects on that level. Um, I think invisibility, um, anytime we're, we're looking at people uh, in terms of kind of their, um, we're looking for reasons to, uh, to not recognize that they have value just mm-hmm. because they're a person, right? We're, we're, we're playing that invisibility game. So, uh, so I think that's... Um, yeah, that, that, that says a lot. I, I think about the ways um, in particular neighborhoods, we also can structure and build things so that people who are actually suffering um, right, right in our own town, we, we build a way to live so that we never see them mm-hmm. <laughs> and we never have to deal with, with those problems. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's another form that we, we render others invisible across uh, racial lines 
across uh, sort of class lines as well. So I think that theme connects um, in some really profound ways. I've heard some of my friends uh, of Asian uh, Asian descent, Asian American descent speak as well about invisibility in the way that um, they've experienced that in their communities uh, or, or as representatives in their communities stateside as well. And I think that's really, um, there's, there's much there as well. Mm. I, you know, as I was reading this, I thought of times that, yes, I have felt invisible as a black man. When have you ever felt, have you ever felt invisible? Yeah, I have. I, I mentioned a couple. I, th- I think I mentioned a couple yep. in the in the in the chapter. Um, yeah, just a couple moments of of of, of kind of pronounced um, experiences of that of, of just sort of um, the sort of the the curtain pulled back of like, oh, this is this is the way that you think. This is how you think of me. So I do remember as a um, uh, elementary school, like making friends with somebody at a, like a summer camp, making friends with a brother and sister at a summer camp. My mom was also working at the camp. We had a great time together, um, you know, joking, ha- having fun with these this brother and sister pair. And then the next day, um, they would not, they wouldn't talk to me um, at all. Um, and like avoided me, which was, uh, was obviously r- extremely odd. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being like, oh, okay. And then my mom had to explain. She's like, yeah, I've seen, I've, I know this, this story. Like, mm. and so she was Been the there. one that had to fill that out, fill, yeah. you know, explain to me, like they went home, this is what happened. This is what they were told and not to, not to yeah. talk to you. Um, so that's probably the one that sticks out to me um, the most. Uh, and, and that might've been probably the first instance of, of that sort of experience. And so that, 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 that's the one that I go back to the most. Yeah, you you mentioned that on page 16. I, I have a similar story. I remember uh, being probably around 12 years old or so going to a friend's house and it was a group of us and uh, we were hanging out in the basement and a friend of mine pulled me aside and said, oh, the friend that I was we were visiting uh, uh, was Vietnamese, so her mother was speaking to her in Vietnamese and uh, apparently her mother had asked, why did you bring the black girl? over Mm. and so after that there was you know this cut off and never really hung out or was Mm. invited back to to the house again so yeah i mean definitely definitely experiences of uh invisibility but i love and again i i really want to hone in on again the purpose of this book is really uh delving into the spiritual aspect of this and and the spiritual aspect of of again seeing ourselves as image bearers of god you later on say on that same page um uh, page 12 his invis- invisibility is not the result of a defect in him but is a moral fault found in those who behold him the problem of invisible's invisibility and thus the problem of black people's disregarded dignity is firmly in the eyes of the beholder, the eyes of the white individuals who make up the society in which the nameless invisible navigates as Ellison's proxy for countless black Americans. And I, you know, I would say maybe black people all over the world. H- how do we resonate with that and remind ourselves of the image in which we are of God instead of how we are seen by others? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that takes a lot of, I think that takes a lot of work um, and, it, and it requires faith and, and trust um, because our, your, your day, our, the day-to-day human experience um, is, is its own sort of input, its own sort of voice, its own mm-hmm. sort of, you know, sermon that's being presented to us. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of voices 
that are out and then ha- have an agenda to to have a to have individuals perceive themselves in particular ways, and so uh, it becomes really crucial to not only um, filter and weigh those voices, but also to filter and weigh um, the experiences that we go through and how they might shape how we see ourselves. And I think we have to uh, we have to let the truth of what God has declared. Um, be be the foundation of our sense of self and what he's declared is that he made man and woman in his image and and it was good and mm. uh, and so that's that's where we begin certainly we need to recognize sin and brokenness but there's a there's a fundamental goodness to uh to the to the fact of our existence and our being because we we're made in the image of god we're um we we reflect the one who made us who himself is good as father son and holy spirit and so that has to be really fundamental and uh it's difficult when um every other voice around you says you know your your worth comes from accomplishment mm. uh education uh looking this way not looking that way you know being a part of the the in ethnicity and not the outsider ethnicity all those sort of things mm-hmm. are, there's a million variations of that so it's it's quite a struggle and we have to let the word of uh, our, our, our goodness as image bearers ring loud and also let the word of the gospel ring loud that, that we're claimed and loved by the God who made us, even despite the, um, the, the errors and and sin that, that we have uh, fallen into from our own doing as well. So, so I think it really comes down to, um, uh, a real trust, right? Mm -hmm. What, what, what message will, will we trust? Um, and we're going to have to trust one. We're going to have to believe a voice about who we are and whose we are. And, and I think um, the way of life and, and hope and, and flourishing comes from, from listening to what God has said. Yeah, you say later on in the book, those rendered invisible by the world must gaze upon the image of the, invis- the invisible God. I think about my friends, though, Claude, and we'll, we're going to move on to James Baldwin's uh, book next. But I think about my friends who don't yet know Jesus, who you know, struggle with even understanding where they are and the scope of just God because they um, have different um, experiences or uh, different reflections of who God is or just brokenness when it comes to to God. How do you have those, as a pastor, how do you have those conversations, especially with uh, people of color when it comes to their worth in God's eyes when yet they have such a broken relationship with God? Yeah. Um... That's a really good question. Um, you know, I usually try to listen, really listen a lot and, and try to get a sense of uh, a person's story because there's mm-hmm. going to be, um, you know, uh, I think traces of um, uh, pockets and places where no matter what someone believes, to even if they don't believe what you're going to say, hearing the fact that God made you and you have value and that thing that that person said or that way that you see yourself or the way that that person saw you. It's not right, and and this is actually the truth that God declares, and this is the truth that that's true in Jesus, and it's offered to you. So I think if you you listen well and know someone well, you're going to see the places where um, that message is is really a word on target, straight to their heart, straight to their experience. Now that doesn't mean obviously someone's like, oh, I I, I now believe that, but mm-hmm. I think they can um, connect and say, oh, it, you know, interesting, um, mm-hmm. or you know, that, that sounds good. I don't think it's true, but that, at least it sounds good. So I think if, you know, if you can kind of get to get to that spot to really speak, speak into their story, I think it takes a lot of um, a time to, to hear and to understand where someone is coming from. Yeah. 
You delve into James Baldwin's uh, book, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And if you can, again, I, I thought it was great that you kind of described the premise of uh, uh, Ralph Ellison's book. If you can describe the premise of uh, Go Tell on the Mountain, that would be awesome. Yeah, gladly. So uh, Go Tell on the Mountain is James Baldwin's uh, debut debut novel. Again, another uh, of the great um, literary works of the 20th century. It's a kind of a semi-autobiographical novel. Uh, he worked on it for quite a long time, I think close to uh, close to a decade. And it tells, um, again, being semi-autobiographical, it tells the story of a, a young boy, John Grimes, um, uh, right on the day of his birthday, uh, I believe about to turn 13, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, his, uh, his father, technically his stepfather, um, Gabriel is a is a preacher in a holiness Pentecostal storefront church in New York City, and so the whole novel actually takes place in 24 hours. They're having a Terry night service, um, but it's through the um, through the lens of that night service that there's these series of three major flashbacks that tell sort of his family history, um, uh, Gabriel's family history, and which is obviously the stepson John's family history as well. And through that family history, it really explores um, the travels of his family from the South to the North, but also really raises this question about uh, faith, suffering, and kind of Black people trying to find their way. Um, and it's really centered on um, on kind of John, Gabriel, uh, and then and then Florence, uh, um, uh, the mother. So um, it's a it's a powerful, um, a really powerful novel and a, a real um, kind of sacred work of art. And you title each chapter differently. So uh, this chapter is called God, and it's obviously based on the book. But why did you cha- why did you uh, title this chapter God? Yeah. So with the way I structured the book was uh, to try to look at each of these works of of literature uh, in relation to a particular kind of like theological theme or kind of Christian idea, and um, working from the premise that that these works, if they're read in a literary lens, but then also a kind of theological lens, that they really illumine um, that particular idea and show us and can show readers kind of the fullness of that idea, either through kind of positive resonance with the Christian faith or mm-hmm. in, in in the case of Baldwin, this sort of like critique that I think has validity that can actually help Christians, believers, uh, you know, people who are religiously neutral, it, it can actually help everybody get a better understanding of what Christianity really is, despite uh, its abuses and the ways that we fall short of uh, of the truth. So I wanted to sort of highlight a particular theme to pair with each each literary work. And on page 42, I'll just read a little bit here, it says, because God is drained of love, tragic theology perversions saturate the novel. Truth and grace are housed in the beauty and brokenness of the world, while hypocrisy and toxicity are the, are the property of the church. Because the center of the church, its conception of God, is absent of love. Affirmation of John's personhood is found outside of church's walls. Baldwin writes, and you later go on. Uh, but you talk about, and I, I you you talk about really the the brokenness that Gabriel is going through as he is, you know, in this image. He he's the pastor. He's but really this brokenness that he has in his relationship with God, mm-hmm. the toxicity that he has in his relationship and how that is shown then 
uh, to John and to others. And unfortunately, we, we do see that in the church and it's kind of, um, what's the word? I guess it's kind of fractured a lot of, uh, of Black people's experience of church and understanding and maybe a feeling of belonging uh, when it comes to maybe some of the toxicity that we've seen. And and I, I see how, you know, James Baldwin kind of has echoed that throughout uh, this book as well. Describe to me how, yeah, just wading into that really dysfunctional relationship that Gabriel has and how that is explored throughout this book. Yes. So uh, Gabriel is um, a really uh, kind of tragic, tragic figure. Yeah. He's um he's a he's a preacher and he has um kind of this uh this unrighteous past he has this sort of conversion moment um but it's a conversion moment that um that feels complicated because uh it's sort of guided by his mom in some ways so so you wonder in the novel oh does it is this really for you and um and in the conversion moment he speaks of like wanting to have this sort of like religious power to be this preacher mm-hmm. and so it's this moment of of it, you know as you as you read it you're like, oh, okay. And then as the story goes on, they'll say, oh no, there, there, there was there was something that seems to be off at, at the base here. And because he um uh because he he seems to gravitate towards the sort of status and the power that comes from this yeah. religious office, he is um he's incapable of of actually uh expressing uh, any sort of like compassion and, and love. It's just, it seems to be rooted all in the sense of control and the sense of his status. Um, and then this becomes compounded when he uh, commits adultery uh, as, as a pastor, then he has this, uh, a, a, you know, a, a illegitimate child. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now he projects all of that onto everybody else and onto yeah. John, um, his, his, his other stepson. And so Gabriel ends up being, this sort of um, representation uh, and embodiment of somebody who is really vocal, literally as a, as a preacher, a vocal representation of the faith, but is a person that has no compassion, no mercy, and, and no love, but is just extremely rigid about what he perceives to be uh, holiness. And as you read the novel, we know all of this as readers, we get to find, we know all of this backstory. His stepson yeah. doesn't. So stepson is like, why, why, why does he act like this? Well, we, we, we are seeing this, we're, we're understanding this and we're realizing that at the root of his faith is a broken conception of God. Um, he thinks God is hard and, and cruel. Therefore he is, he has mm-hmm. this sort of guilt and the shame that hasn't been dealt with. Therefore he, uh, shames and guilts others. And you see sort of this lineage and then it becomes, becomes the question, I think at the center of the novel is, is this just what Christianity is or is this novel a critique of that type of Christianity? Mm-hmm. And that I think is, you know, can be debated. I have, I have my stance, which I think I try to make clear in the chapter, but that becomes a question. And I think that relates to uh, a lot of uh, black experience as well, because the sort of Gabriel and John relationship, um, I think it can also be read and understood as how black people also relate and wonder about God. Like mm-hmm. is, is God hard and cruel? because of the history and the things that um, the people from our lineage have seen and have seen done in his name. Is this fundamental to who God is? Or is this um, a misrepresentation that is grave um, 
and uh, and vile, but actually um, doesn't remove uh, the reality of God's goodness because yeah. this is warped and it's not true. So, so I think those sort of pair. There's there's two levels to kind of read that that Baldwin novel. I think that uh, that are I think are very important. And I think there's a level of relevance as well, right? Is the church relevant to to us today? I think some people could ask that question and struggle with that question as well. What do you think? Yes, yeah. I mean, I think that is part of the question as well. Is um, you know, the novel ends um, with John sort of like having this religious kind of awakening, mm-hmm. but then he's got to go back. The night service is over. He's got to go back to the streets of New York. And and part of the question is, is this faith going to make it? The novel doesn't answer it, but is this faith going to make any, any difference to yeah. all of the hard things that are going on in his environment? Is this really, does this really matter? Is anything, is anything really going to be different or is he just going to be another, you know, another unknown person, another statistic, another person trying to, to, to make his way out of, out of a, a really bad environment situation. Then the novel leaves that for the reader to decide. And I think it is, it is posing that question of relevance. Is, is this just sort of a pipe dream for him or is this something that actually uh, has substance? Yeah. It, it doesn't say. Yeah. I'd love to hear your story, Claude. How, how have you found relevance in faith in your life? Why, why is it that you have found yourself a pastor, a Christian, a, a, a believer in Jesus? What has, what has stood out to you in your faith to make you hold on to God? Yeah, um, you know, I think it's 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 what I had been passed down from uh, from from my mom, but then obviously at a certain point, it, I, I I wrestle and reckon and try to make this my own. Um, I mean, I, I I resonate a lot with um, the words of uh, Augustine, the North African mm-hmm. bishop, who says um, something to affect, um, uh, "What am I apart from you, Lord, but a guide to my own downfall?" Um, mm-hmm. So I think um, for me. Um, that rings really true. And another one of his quotes, I think rings true. Um, our hearts are restless Lord until they rest in you. So, um, I relate a little bit to invisible in terms of kind of like looking in a lot of different places, uh, you know, education, um, um, you know, being popular, living the life whatever that's defined to be, uh, achievement success. And I think experientially, um, if I found those things, uh, fine, but lacking, they, 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 they don't, um, they don't bring the sense of fullness and completion, um, and peace and rest, mm-hmm. um, that, that I find in, in Christ and, and in his gospel and in his love. So I think for me, um, it, it's been, it's been turning up empty in under my own self-direction, mm-hmm. which then has brought me back to the things that I think deep down that I, that I knew were true. Uh, and then, uh, as I've embraced those, it's now trying to go, uh, you know, kind of further up and further in into the the goodness, the beauty, and the truth of uh, of uh, of the faith. So, and I think those three really connect with me as well. So, I think um, what I was talking about of sort of like the dead ends that's yeah. helped me see um, uh, the truth and the goodness uh, of of the gospel. But I also, as I've walked in those, now I see the beauty of it as well, where mm-hmm. it's sort of like, you know. Um, I mean, the, the whole, the whole, the whole, all of creation is God's and it's good. And, and I think the fullest kind of philosophy of life is, is really found in, found in Jesus that, that gives me the ability, I think, even to take art that is mm-hmm. not written by people of faith, but to, but to love the goodness and the beauty that's in it. You know, I can, I can do that as a Christian from the Christian worldview. Um, 
not that that's not that's not possible in every sort of perspective. And so, so I think I just keep continue to be moved by God's goodness and 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 that it really does lead into the fullness of life and it gives a meaning when in the face of suffering as well. I know that. Thank you for sharing. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna move on to um, oh, which one should I do? Because time's going, and I <laughs> okay, let's do Toni Morrison's okay. uh, Beloved. Uh, okay, describe the premise of of that book. Yes, so uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison. Um, it came out in uh, 1987, and um, this is um, I think. The book that I want to say she's probably most well known for this and the mm-hmm. bluest eye are probably mm-hmm. the two. Um, I mean, she's written many books and and they're all wonderful and, and powerful. But I think this and the bluest eye are the two that she's most well known for. Um, Beloved uh, tells the story of um, of a runaway enslaved woman, Setha, who leaves a, a plantation, ironically named Sweet Home, uh, to go to uh, kind of northern Ohio uh, in kind of reunites with her her mother-in-law um and she uh she escapes uh with her children um and the uh the slave owners uh track her down um and are coming to uh to re-enslave her and her children uh she does not um she will not subject herself and her children back to to a return there uh she makes the impossible choice to uh she actually kills one of her, her young, um, um, uh, kind of toddler age, um, child. And, um, and then that child's sort of ghost spirit incarnation comes back, um, to the home, uh, and sort of can be read in different ways. Haunts, uh, is looking to, to take the, to feel the connection that was stolen because of, uh, uh, slavery and, and oppression and, and that impossible choice of, of of her mother, and and that's really the story of the novel, um, or or sort of the catalytic events of the novel. Uh, the novel is told in sort of these these flashbacks and these returns. The chapters aren't numbered, mm-hmm. so it becomes um, it, it, you're sort of uh, feel like you're being washed in kind of the downpour of of history and suffering uh, for for Setha, but also for many other characters, Paul D, one of her her friends who becomes um, uh, a partner and a lover and, and so forth. And so uh, I think the novel is constructed to really immerse the reader in the waves of kind of uh, of suffering and trauma that Setha is experiencing as she tries to find a way to rebuild her life. The novel is structured for readers to feel that through the sort of disorientation that comes from memories uh, of pain just kind of uh, assaulting and attacking out of nowhere. So the, uh, the question I, th- I think at the center of the novel is sort of how can, can how, how does one heal yeah. from, from such trauma and injustice um, individually and then also kind of collectively? How do we heal and process the wounds of history? Yeah. I remember starting to read Beloved back in the day and I couldn't, I just couldn't get through it. Like I just... As you said, the waves of emotion were just, it was just so much to my soul that I was just like, I kept taking breaks. I couldn't, there's just so much in yeah. that book. Um, and, and you touch on it, you, you, um, you label or uh, title this uh, part of the book, Healing and Memory. Talk to me about the importance of healing as people who have gone through so much. Uh, you, I mean, you do that so beautifully throughout this chapter of describing the 
the importance and the permission that we need um, to have to be able to heal, um, but also still remember what we've gone through as well. Yeah, and, and it makes me think back, Maggie, to what you had asked about um, sort of dignity yeah. um, related to Invisible Man, because I think one of the ways to see healing in this novel is through the character named Baby Suggs, who is Setha's mother-in-law, who really proclaims to um, to the people of the community, the Black folks in the community, to love themselves, to love their flesh, uh, and to understand that, you know, kind of when you go out into the world, uh, their flesh will not be loved. They will mm-hmm. not be seen. But so their duty is to recognize and to embrace um, uh, their God-givenness, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that is, a, I think the novel suggests a lot of ways to healing and that that being a fundamental one to recognize no matter um, no matter our, our suffering, no matter what's said about us, no matter what we endure, um, our, our suffering our suffering cannot strip our dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I love this quote. I actually uh, use it to start the chapter um, by uh, theologian um, Miroslav uh, Wolf, who says, um, he says, uh, we are more than what we have suffered. And that is the reason we can do something with our memory of it. Yeah. And so I think the novel suggests a couple ways to healing, which is to re- recognize our God-givenness, that our suffering doesn't negate our, our goodness, um, the goodness that we have within us as, as those who are made in God's image. But then also one of the ways that we heal is to remember rightly, but also to remember in a certain sort of way, because when Beloved comes back on the scene, uh, the, the dead uh, daughter of, of Setha sort of um, embodied, uh, she's she's sort of keeping setha in the memory of of that impossible choice that setha has made mm-hmm. and it's sort of this recurring cycle of remembering but never healing which uh which i argue is sort of this um uh it, it's almost this kind of purgatory mm-hmm. for setha she can't move forward she can't heal so there's a way if we f- if you fixate on memory um you you don't really heal but if you never remember you also can't heal either uh-huh. So we have to remember in the right sort of way. And the healing moment for Setha becomes um, when others sort of fight for her in her memory and in her processing. So she ends up remembering kind of in the light is the way I talk about mm-hmm. it, remembering in community, remembering with others. Um, and and I think that's really important. I think that's part of how we heal. So recognizing that God-givenness, but also not falling into the... Um, alternate errors of, 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 of false healing through memory, which is fixation, right? Mm-hmm. We, we don't need to fixate on all the, the wrong that's happened to us and all the wrong that we've done, but we also can't push it all the way under the rug. There's a way that we have to go forward together in memory for the sake of healing. And I think that applies on a personal level, but also on kind of communal national yeah. levels, right? For countries, for cities to process hard things that have happened in, in their, in their locales. You know, you can't, can't rehearse it forever. You can't pretend it never happened. Mm-hmm. You you have to do something else um, mm-hmm. in order to bring people together through through the grace of healing. And I think um, for Christians, it, it does make the connection. I think to uh, to Christ and and to uh, His wounds and to the grace and and the encouragement and nourishment that that we partake when we partake of communion. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a do the, doing this in remembrance of Him, and it's His suffering uh, that that uh, brings healing. Uh, in redemption to us and our suffering. So, so I think there's a lot there, but I think beloved actually makes vivid some of these important lessons. Yeah. I, I, 
I have so many questions that came out of that, Claude, but I want to read this quote and then I'm going to ask you my next question because I think it so aligns with what you were just say, saying. You say on page 114, a faith that takes injustice and suffering seriously, both historically and presently, is a faith that makes space for rage in its righteous manifestation. A faith, a faith that shrugs at suffering is a faith on life support in deep need of revival and reacquaintance with the scriptures. The scriptures speak to the suffering of 60 million and more in part through the ancient suffering of God's people. Talk to me about how do we, how do we make that applicable to today? You know, I think about what's happening in your land, mm-hmm. <laughs> in your country, and, and how some some will want to ignore, not want to teach our children about the past, about history, about what has happened, about all of the suffering that has happened. And yet you're right. We can't fixate on it, but we need to remember it. We can't uh, pretend it never happened, but we also can't just make it fizzle away. And so as we look at what is happening today in our world and how there are, is a desire for some to just make that just go away and pretend it never happened. And, you know, I, I hear many times, why can't you just move on? Why can't, why can't your people just move on? And yet you're right. We, we live and, 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 uh, worship a God who through, and I love that, that, um, comparison you make to communion, this rightfully, this way of beautifully acknowledging the suffering that, that Jesus has gone through, through communion. And yet being able to move on through that faith and through that life, how do we apply that to to what we're living out today? Yeah, um, that is a good question. I mean, I think the, the need, to me, the reason, one of the ways that we know uh, we can't move on is because we we haven't really healed from this at all so it's sort of like it's sort of like well we can't you know we're not done yet you know clearly clearly we haven't um we haven't kind of mended some of these these long-standing wounds i think in in so many ways um you know yeah it's um i I think i I think there are so few models of this done well Mm -hmm. that people um, and maybe, and probably for other reasons, but I think maybe in the generous reading, there's so few models of this done well that, that people just kind of throw up their hands, you know, like, all right, well, what, what can we do? Yeah. And I think that is where, um, I think, uh, interpersonally, locally in communities and neighborhoods, we have an opportunity to show something different. Um, and I think, you know, you, part of the portion I think that you read, Maggie, mm-hmm. is connected to uh, me referencing the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And I think the Psalms give us a good example of, of you know, if we can begin to converse and pray together in these sort of ways, then I think we actually can move forward to uh, to a sense of processing and healing. You know, um, I think of uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee in, um, in South Africa, mm. Desmond Tutu and, and others. There was this sort of like, hey, we're coming together to process these things. And it's going to be difficult. Uh, and it's going to be really painful. Uh, and this is going to be an extreme challenge, but it's actually through that coming together that things can be dealt with in order to to try to move forward. And I just think about um, in so many places that are fractured, you know, I wonder, has, has something like that been been really done? You know, yeah. you think about families that are torn apart by different things that have happened in their past. Ha- has that been done? You think about, uh, you know, marriages, relationships between siblings, uh, you think about countries, you think about churches. It's like, have, have we really have we really tried to do that? 
and um and and sometimes uh, the the question or the answer is is no, we haven't we've mm-hmm. we've just kind of yelled at each other the whole time and and we haven't been able to move forward so it's a it's a challenge and I understand why uh it, it would be you know in some in some ways uh more comfortable to to just try to get on with the good times but we find ourselves in recurring cycles where we think we've really dealt with this and and yet yet here it comes again yeah. and the responses to injustices show us that you know what even in our churches we haven't maybe we haven't really gotten to gotten to the root of these things and and so then we have the opportunity to to try to move forward well yeah oh, that's so good we're winding down Claude and thank you so much for your time today I, I, you know you touched on something that uh I also wanted to come back to cuz you know as you said none of these books were written from a a spiritual or a scriptural perspective but you have decided to delve into that that angle um why 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 do that <laughs> why uh why just discovering this whole new aspect to again some of these really classic books i think there's a lot to be gained from them um and i think i also realized that a lot of conversations that i that i sort of heard at least from my limited vantage point it felt like they could really be enriched church conversations could really be enriched through familiarity with uh with with this literature mm. um so i think in particular like an example of um is sin personal or systemic or systemic injustice or you know kind of you know individual social justice all that sort of stuff which i think the bible says gives clear answers to mm. but i also realized in hearing people discuss these things it was very clear that that folks were in some cases inside of one perspective only mm. that they hadn't talked to people that had lived in different conditions different environments maybe even different cities um different economics and all that sort of stuff and so to me it was like well literature is actually one of the most powerful tools to create empathy and from that empathy i think there can be reflection mm. so to me it's like if you've read a novel like native son mm. the way you think about sin um be, changes um and actually i think the way it changes is it actually becomes more biblical. You realize that sin is not just a, a, a thing that people do that's bad. It's a force and a power um, at work in the world yeah. that we're trapped under, as Paul says in, in, in Romans 3. So I, I, so I started to see that. And I also started to see um, in 2020, when I was beginning to to work on the book, I, I saw this interest in, in Black voices and Black stories, um, people wanting to read and, and to learn more, uh, uh, which is obviously a, a positive thing. And I remember thinking to myself, well, one of the best ways to do that is to not just look at the stories or, or the books that are coming, you know, now as of the moment, but to actually kind of go back, not, not going that far back, but go back to works that we know have endured and we know have stood um, withstood the test of time because of their value and their depth, mm-hmm. which again drew me drew me again to to this to this literature. So for those two reasons, I, I wanted to try to put something together and and offer that to readers. So my last question is, how have you changed by really delving into again some of these classics, uh, just personally in doing this study? Yeah, I, I would say my change has. Um, can be embodied by the the last chapter, uh, the mm-hmm. poem uh, for mm-hmm. my people by Margaret Walker, which I would encourage folks who are listening. If you haven't read this literature and you're wondering, oh, what should I start with? Um, this could be a place to start. You could obviously read the poem uh, just in a number of minutes. Better yet, you could go on YouTube and, and hear someone read it aloud, mm-hmm. which is even better. Um, 
I think that poem represents the sort of change that's happened for me because that poem is incredibly realistic about suffering and and the history of hardship uh, for uh, for Black folks in America, but but um, across the globe in, in so many ways, and yet it still has this this real serious and deep lens of hope. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are the two things that have happened to me through the, through working on this project is the. Um, a, a deeper sort of unflinching recognition of how um, vile and traumatic um, the story of our people has been. Mm-hmm. And, and yet um, because of that recognition, a, a deeper, realer and, and more um, robust sense of, of hope in, in Christ who, who conquers over death, evil and sin. And I think those two things actually work together. That mm-hmm. hope really only exists when you can see how hard things either were or have been or could be. And so I think the realism and hopefulness have increased for me through this literature. And I think it's been, that's been a great gift to me. Oh, it's been a great gift to us. Thank you again. Again, the name of the book is Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just. Claude Acho, thank you again for being here. Maggie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Well, we are back with Black Girl Chat and my friend Roxanne Francis is joining me once again. Hey, Roxanne. Hey, Maggie. Good. So just heard uh, my interview with Claude. What were some of your thoughts coming out of that? I thought it was really interesting how he was able to uh, navigate faith and these these huge literary mm. giants. Um, there was one point in your conversation with him where you were talking about, um, oh, I hope this thought doesn't escape people who I think, you know, acknowledged that I'm a black woman because I think it's, I think it's pretty obvious, but suddenly it just seemed like suddenly they were uh, uh, awake to the issues yeah. that black people have to deal with. And I, I remember it sometimes feeling slightly irritated going like, like what, what, what do you think actually happens? Do yeah. you think it's just, yes, it's the shade of my skin. It's, it's, it's the melanin, but there's so much more mm-hmm. than that. And mm-hmm. your reality and mine are not the same. Yeah. And so this idea of, oh, you, you black, black. Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Blackity, black, 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 black. Blackity, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, so yeah, that's such a great point, Roxanne. I think when we, when globally, and let's be honest, when white people realized that we needed to have the conversation because we've been trying to have the conversation for a long time. But when that happened, it was like, oh, you guys have been like, I always, I always use the, the analogy of the house burning. It's yes. like, oh, the house is burning. It's like, uh-huh. no, oh, yeah, we've been screaming about the house burning for yeah, a while. It's been burning. But now, <laughs> you know, now we're down to the ashes and you realize. And so, you know, as I was talking with Claude and he was sharing um, some of the first times that he acknowledged or realized that he was black and maybe was mm-hmm. treated invisible. And I shared my story. Do you remember the first time it really sunk in that you were black? That's. That's a, a, it's, it's hard to really, really answer that because, because I grew up in Jamaica and I would imagine that, well, I think most people in my immediate surroundings look like me. 
and throughout the society, there were different people, different shades, different tones. There were also people who were um, of Chinese descent, of Indian descent, you know, of, you know, just different European descent. But because I've been living in the country for so long, Jamaica's motto is out of many one people, right? And so you just, everywhere you go, you would hear the same language spoken and, you know, regardless of what people look like. So that was hard for me. I think what, growing up, what was more definitive for me was skin tone. And the darker your skin tone, generally within the population, the less money you had, the less access you had to opportunity, the less access you had to certain um, pleasures of life, so to speak. And I, I, I remember that coming home to me very, very clearly. When I was a little girl, I had a couple of girls next to me. We went to the same school, um, but they were several shades lighter than I was. And I remember I grew up in a single parent home and they had both their mom and dad and that stood out for me. They had two vehicles in their garage. We took the bus, that stood out for me. And every other summer they went to Disney and I'd never been on a plane. I didn't grace, I didn't get on a plane until I was maybe 19 years old. And that stood out for me. And it it was very clear in my mind, at least, that the reason, the reason we are different is because we look different. And um, so fast forward a few, a number of years, I moved to Canada and um, when I moved to Canada, I moved to Regina, Saskatchewan, which is cause a lot different from uh, Toronto, Ontario. And um, when I got there, I almost braced myself for what I, I kind of expected racism. But what I found was that people there thought I was exotic, very special. You know, um, you have an accent that's so amazing. And, you know, oh my goodness, you've never seen snow. And not in a condescending way, but just in this, you know, put me in a cage. You're this weird, exotic creature, <laughs> right? And, and so that really stood out for me. And when I left Jamaica and I got here, I, I was in the middle of university. And so... I went to the university there and started doing electives while I was trying to figure out, you know, um, my credentials, which is a whole other story. But I remember going into almost like a psych 101 class and the lecture hall was filled with students and there were two black students. And I, I felt it to my core. <laughs> I just felt inconspicuous. And I, I, that was something I felt like I couldn't shake. And so when we moved to Toronto, um, although, you know, Black people are still not in the majority, but I, I felt more anonymous hmm. and it felt so welcome to me. Hmm. It just you felt like, oh. You, didn't, I, you weren't standing out as this exotic exactly. person or, exactly. yeah. Exactly, exactly. I just huh. felt like, I could blend in. I didn't have to, I didn't feel like I needed to hide my accent because people were going to be like, oh my goodness, you know, I just, I could stand in the grocery store and hear people talk the way I do and 
look for foods the way that I it just it it felt more comfortable. I felt like I could blend in, and that was something that I didn't realize that I needed until I got here. And it's interesting that you say that, Roxanne, because I think uh, things that annoy me uh, is when I change my hair, and you'll relate oh to this yes. when you change your hair, <laughs> and I have braids now, and yes. Uh, two weeks ago, I didn't have braids. My hair was very short. <laughs> and, the co- and the cut, co- right? That's what we do as <laughs> black girls. And the conversation of, you know, and so, and I know people mean well, and I have friends who say it and I, you know, I accept it from, from those who say it, but it's, you know, all of a sudden you become kind of that exotic creature again yeah. that you described that you experience mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan. It's like, oh, can I touch it? Oh, mm. you know, and it's like, I, I don't do that when you get your hair colored, you know? Right. And, and so, right. but then I just don't want to enter into the conversation of what is tolerated or should be tolerated mm-hmm. for a black person. Cause it just, mm-hmm. that gets exhausting as well. But yeah, like, I don't want to be treated like the, you know, the person in the cage of like, oh, this yeah. exotic creature yeah. as well. We just want to blend in and when I change my hair that you say oh I like your hair and we're cool the same way that I would do that with my white girlfriends I'd be like hey Mm -hmm. I love your hair you changed it Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be like can I touch it (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever done that to a white person I have a a, a colleague in Calgary who said to me she's a black woman from West Africa, a country mm. in West Africa. And she said to me, you know, I work in an organization that's largely white. And I've told people in my department, listen, we don't have conversation about my hair. That's yeah. off the table. Just see it, ignore it. If it changes, if it doesn't, just, I just don't. And she has told them and they have listened. And she's like, you know what? I'm not doing it. I'm, it's not up for discussion. I'm not going to be made to feel uncomfortable. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable because I'm probably going to disrespect you. So let's just cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> or just acknowledge and say, right. Or just acknowledge and say, hey, I love your hairdo today and just yeah. keep moving. Yeah. Like it's just, yeah. just the same way. Yeah. You know, I think about, I shared the one story of uh, visiting my friend in school and, um, and her mom uh, saying, why did you bring the black girl? But I, I think also, you know, another um, experience that stands out to me is actually church, Mm. because for the longest time, uh, we went to a predominantly white Anglican church in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And then when we moved to uh, the church where actually you and I met, Mm -hmm. uh, that was the first time, Roxanne, I had been in in an environment with so many Black people. Black people. Wow. So, like, I remember, like, walking in being like, oh, my gosh. Everybody looks like me (laughs) and, and feeling a sense of home, feeling a sense of belonging, Mm -hmm. but also recognizing I'm black. Mm -hmm. Like, because, you know, like my, my parents would always talk to me about life is going to be hard and, you Mm -hmm. know, you're going to have to work harder as a black woman and all of those things. Like I always got those talks. I always Mm -hmm. had the, you know, my father would always have those speeches. Okay, you want to go into journalism? Do you know what that means? Like, I'd always have mm-hmm. those conversations. But I think it hit me, just the realization of being Black when I walked into an all-Black gotcha. church mm-hmm. and felt home. Mm-hmm. Like, actually felt like I didn't have to explain things. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to explain my hair. You know, like, all you of those things. Exist. I could just exist. Yeah. And um, 
and yeah and 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 see like and also see excellence yeah in our culture as well because yeah i grew up in in a in a neighborhood where there weren't a lot of black people now that I think about it. My school, I think I was one of only a couple black students. And so, yeah, that was just reality for mm-hmm. me. So in a way, it's just a, a little bit of a flip because it was like actually coming to terms with the beauty of mm-hmm. being black. Yeah. And I always say now, like, I wouldn't trade my skin color for anything. I anything. love love being a black mm-hmm. woman i mm-hmm. love it i love all of the things our melanin all of the complexities, all of the complexities <laughs> as well but yeah i couldn't and again this is all i've ever known but mm-hmm. i think it's coming to terms with all of those complexities as well yeah. what do you think yeah I think so. And I think, you know, I, I probably because of my experience in, in Regina, I've always, um, I've always seen and experienced um, kindness from, uh, from people who are white. And I, maybe people talk behind me, behind my back. I don't know. But, and, but I, I do know that um, the racism that I feel that I, generally encounter is a structural systemic kind right <clears throat> but i do know that um there has been one um one incident a number of years ago i would say maybe about 10 or 11 years ago um i was driving on an interior interior road and i was about to get on the highway because i was i had like a two hour drive ahead of me i was traveling to going to see someone and just before I was about to get on the highway, I I don't know what, what I was doing, but I inadvertently cut some guy off. And we got to a light just before I were about to get on the highway, and he pulled up around alongside me. And I pulled my window down to say, I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. And Maggie, he hurled the most vile obscenities at me, including that beautiful word that none of us like. And I was so stunned and I, I like, I literally shook the entire drive. And when I got to my destination, I parked and I sat there for a while and I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is what people are talking about. I cannot believe that this is my experience. And I think, you know, the idea of, um, being, among people who are like you or people who look like you. I mean, people are people wherever you go, but we all have that commonality and you feel safe. You feel psychologically safe. You do feel at home. You breathe this sigh of relief. You can exist without explanation. You say things and people know what you're talking about. It's like um, I had a, 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 a therapy client was talking to me the other day and she said something about, um, about girlfriends, the series, and she referred to one of the characters, and I said, "Oh yeah," and she said, "Oh my goodness, you have no idea." I said this to my last therapist, and she had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> so just being able to exist with that explanation, and I, I, I now see it in, in my ten-year-old son, right? Um, he goes to a school where you know there are white children, but the majority of the kids are white, and all of his teachers are white. The principal is white. And I, I may have mentioned to you once before that we went to um, 
an indoor playground and in the, the area where you sit and have, you know, cake and whatever, there were a couple of tables with different families and there were about two or three families in a row and they were black families. And he looked up from his pizza, he looked to his left, he looked to his right, and then looked up at me with this huge grin on his face. And he said, mommy, all these families are black. They have brown skin like us. And I said, yeah, what do you think about that? And he said, it's so cool. And he had the, and he, you know, he went back to his pizza, but he looked so happy, right? So relaxed and at home. And I think that while we have learned to navigate it, it's become apparent to me that I now have to help him navigate that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and it's not, no, it does. And it's (laughs) not about, and I don't want people to think, oh, we're looking for a segregated society. No, no. It's about being able to see yourself reflected in other people. That's That's what it is. It's just, it's a sense of you're always, for so many of us, we're always the only Yes. You know, how many times you and I walk into a room and we're the only black women yes. and we are expected to represent all of the sisters, yes. right? Yes. And and we can't. So it's just being able to, and for many white people, they walk into rooms and they don't have to exist by themselves. They don't have to represent their culture and their community mm-hmm. because there are many people that look like them exactly. uh, when they walk into a room. So it, it's just, it's being able to see yourself in somebody else and be able to feel a sense of safety. Yeah. And until we get to that point in society where we're not seen as simply, uh, there's not a negative connotation to skin color or diversity or culture or things of that, then we're always going to be in that place mm-hmm. of trying to look for safety and seeing our others. And we do have a mutual friend who I remember saying, as she said at a dinner once that we were at, that not every skin folk is kin folk. Kin folk. Oh, and we I've do. <laughs> and so that is true. Um, I'll leave that there. Yes. But for the most part, it's just a sense of feeling safety yeah. and feeling a belonging. And, you know, I would encourage our listeners, check out some of those books that Claude had mentioned because yes. um, they are just a great, like, if you really do want to take your understanding of Black art. Um, black reality to a whole other level. These mm-hmm. are some great books that you can delve into. Take your time as you're reading them. Maybe do a book study um, alongside with Claude's book. And I think you'll just get to learn about, again, your black brothers and sisters in a whole other level mm-hmm. that I think will just enrich your relationship with black and brown people uh, mm-hmm. that you live alongside. Yeah. I think those books take you on a journey. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny today I was putting, I was mentioning that I was putting some finishing touches on a workshop that I'm going to deliver this week. And the topic is actually on unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. And at the very end of it, um, my challenge to the, the, the workshop participants is to step outside of your personal bubble. Yeah. Get to know uh, not just other people who don't look like you, but other cultures that are not like yours, other yeah. magazines that might have material that that's not something that you would normally pick up, right? Mm-hmm. A cultural festival. Um, but don't just go because, you know, the people are cool, but learn about, you know, people that we consider other. Yeah. So that when we connect with with those other people, 
it's from a place of a bit more understanding. Yes. And it and and we 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 it, it allows us to put down some of our biases, you know, just leave them at the door. Yes. Bit. And it allows us as black people to put maybe down some of our barriers and defenses so that we can truly be ourselves with others. Um, I think of some of my white girlfriends that I can be truly myself with Mm -hmm. and that's a safe space. Right. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to, to get to that spot is so important. Thanks so much, Roxanne. Yeah, you're welcome. This is a good conversation. Went a little long, but it was a good one. Thank you for checking out Here With Me, Maggie John. I want to thank Claude Acho and Roxanne Francis for joining me today. Check out our Instagram page, Here With Maggie, for more great content. We're all on a journey. Let's learn from each other. Please subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. A new episode drops the 19th of every month. Next month, I sit down with worship leader and author Anthony Evans. We discuss his new book, When Faith Meets Therapy. Hope to see you here next time.